The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on News Talk 1493 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On the Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy, as they said, with Paul Rudy's On the What original name, huh? <laughs> Paul Rudy's on the Money Radio Show. You know why I do that, guys? I used to listen to a show. He doesn't do the show anymore. It was Bob Brinker's Market Timer. Right. Uh, even though I'm not a market timer, much of what he espoused was, you know, in line with what right. I, what I believe, at least. Uh, and I always thought that was kind of interesting. You know, Bob Brinker's Market Timer, and I just I'm just not very original. Right. Well, I think also uh, there may be. I don't think you have a. A lock on on the money. There may be on the money shows in other places. I looked on the web occasionally. You're right. You know, it's interesting because I think back in 1990 when we started doing the show, I tried to convince my brother John to, hey, let's you know kind of trademark the name. I don't even know if it would have been then. Yeah. Or let's try to at least somehow capture it. But well, I don't think we ever never did do that. But in fact, uh, a pretty significant radio station years ago wanted to talk to us about doing an on the money show up yeah. on, on theirs as well. And turns out they decided to do their own on yeah. the money. So they, they copied us, but on the money's, you know, pretty common phrase, I guess. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz, as everybody can hear already. Dr. Fred, good to see you today. Yeah, yeah good to be here. Figuring out what building we're going to be in. We're still yeah. in the old studio. I suspect next time we'll be in the new studio and back from, was it paternity leave? I guess that's what we call it. Family you know, leave. We're family so, leave. We are so woke at Rudy yeah. Wealth Management that we let people offer as right. long as they want. And they still pay them. Yeah. Of course, it's a little easier when it's your grandchildren involved, right? So yeah, Maybe required. Like <laughs> now the proposal is a four-month, four, four a week instead of three months family leave that uh, hasn't been approved yet. Interesting. Yeah, it's always something. So certified financial planner professional Ryan Repko joins us today. Good morning. Back from his hiatus. I think, when are we going to pull David back? I think oh. we're going to pull him back now that his child's four or five months old i think he's in the safety zone now well last time you said he's close to retirement so you may have to (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's quite the saver just like you dr fred you're you know retired but here you are yeah working the busiest retiree i know uh you can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us us on the castle heating and cooling text line at 351-5357 you can also email your questions to talk at WDWS.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, here we are, guys. Uh, I'm going to take a text here uh, shortly, but I thought I'd at least give a, you know, it's kind of interesting that with all the walls of worry, things to worry about these days, you see the S&P 500 I think this is through the end of yesterday, up about just a little over 22%. If I look at a global uh, equity portfolio, it's up pretty close to that, uh, probably shy of that by a couple of percent, but up 19 or 20%. And then a kind of a global 60, 40, 60% stocks, 40% bonds allocations, probably up somewhere in the range of 11%. And uh, which doesn't just tells you what's happened already, doesn't tell you anything about tomorrow, but still. And that, well, and I add this. I might have said this last time when we were together, Fred. I went back to the be, the very beginning of this bull market, which was the end of the pandemic bear market. And basically, the S and P five hundred in a global. I'm using the DFA Global Equity Fund for my proxy, basically for a global portfolio allocation. Both of them were up about a hundred and five percent. So no, they had fallen thirty three percent before we got right. to hundred percent, but. Yeah, people should realize that the, uh, there's a spate of stories now about how wonderful the uh, foundations are in investing because they had these huge returns last year. Well, the right, fact yeah. is, everyone had huge returns last year if you were playing the game at all. So you have to look at a benchmark. You can't. Uh, so again, there was an article about how how flush universities are now because they had these huge uh, returns on their endowments, and they did. But uh, again, they could have done most anything and gotten the same return. It wasn't they, they were yeah. like super. 
super smart or super. Yeah, I read one that you know showed up thirty four percent, and uh, you know it sounds impressive. But if you went back and and yeah, it was a fiscal year, like a lot of them yeah. are mid year. You know, July thirty yeah. first, I think, or is it June thirtieth? June thirtieth. June thirtieth. And when you really start comparing those comps, and then all of a sudden I was trying to figure out if that, that truly was impressive or not. I think it turned out to be pretty impressive, but nothing, nothing stellar. Um, yeah, go ahead, Ryan. I, I, when I see these numbers, I always start getting you know, worried that people think the market essentially just goes up and it continues to go up and it has this past year with very little backtracking. I think people get lulled in com into complacency and they start thinking that, well, you know, why would I keep more money in bonds or why would I do anything other than, you know, pursuing towards this, what I would call some people saying an inevitable continued rise in growth. And it gets people potentially caught off guard. I think that's, you know, one of the biggest tricks of these long runs. Um, and this is by not by no means saying this is long in the scheme of investing, but for a period of a year, you know, how many 5% corrections have we had? And also the uh, adverse. I, I don't know. Have uh, we had one? one? Have we had I'm one? I'm not even sure that we've had. I, I think at this point we probably have, uh, not too long ago, but uh, I'll, I'll look as we're sitting here talking, but we certainly have not had a 10% correction in right. a very yeah, long time. Every time uh, there'll be a 1,000 or 2,000 point drop in the Dow, and I'm mm -hmm. prepared. The next time I come in, I'll talk about that. And when I come in, it's, <laughs> it's not there anymore. It's recovered. So like today, we're close to all-time highs, I think. Right. Yep. I think, I think both the S&P 500 and the Dow – and it's just, it's really impressive that what you talked about, Ryan, is, you know, how there's a lot of noise in the, in the short run. Yeah. Um, Jason Dwight, uh, Jason Zweig, who writes for the Wall Street Journal, he, he was writing and lamenting about some of his even, he should have known better. Uh, but part of it, he talked about something he once wrote in the bull market now in a period of rising prices that leads many investors to believe that their IQ has risen at least as much <laughs> as the market value of their portfolios. <laughs> After the inevitable fall in prices, they will learn that both increases were temporary. Huh. See bear market. Um, uh, and then he goes on to say, oh, that was kind of, these reminders I think are very important. And I think this is uh, what he, re he refers to, something uh, Warren Buffett had made about making multi-billion dollar mistakes. He said, all of this is a reminder. It isn't investments that make or lose money. It's investors. And risk isn't what you own or how markets fluctuate. Risk is simply... Uh, thinking you know more than you do, and I, and I think that's probably a little <laughs> bit of what you were addressing, Ryan. You know, these can almost can make you complacent or lull you into the sense of you know it's inevitable that the markets just continue to go higher. And probably the only issue I would take with Jason Dwight is the ups, in my view, are always permanent. The downtrends are what are temporary, but uh, it still I thought was uh, very apropos. I, you know, so you know this interesting times. Confusing times. Right. Uh, I was going to say, uh, you know, we talk about uh, passive investment and not picking winners, but now you have a situation where one car company, uh, Tesla, is worth as much as the next nine. So the, the number one is worth more than the next nine in capitalized value. That seems to be incredible, but yet mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to act on it or do one thing or another, but it's, right. it's kind of hard. You probably find out. One of the two sides is probably wrong. Yeah. It reminds me back in uh, before the 2008-2009 great financial crisis. My family and I, we could go to Florida every year. And for a while, you know, we rented one house on Fort Myers Beach. And I had mentioned to the guy, he was a U of I grad, oddly enough, who even went fishing for an afternoon. And I said, you know, I've noticed that the prices of these places have tripled. Mm -hmm. But the rents are still what the same as they were five years ago that I was paying. I said one of the two is going <laughs> to end up being wrong, and at that point I didn't have an idea which yeah. how it was going to. But sometimes there's just certain things that stick out, and you go, "Well, either those nine companies are going to show that they were undervalued, or the one maybe." And it doesn't have to be either one of those. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go ahead uh, before I go on to some additional kind of just kind of benchmarks like household net worth and things like that. We do have a text. It says, good morning, uh, Paul Rudy. I'm 45 years old and still and it still confuses me on why to do a Roth versus traditional 401k. I understand the difference and reasoning that you bet on paying lower taxes now, but wouldn't, oh, but wouldn't there be, I'm sorry, my reading glasses only stretched so far. Uh, 
Okay, so I'm, it's between me, the microphone is a good distance from this. So I'm trying to read this. Uh, but wouldn't there be circumstances such as a loss of a job or possibly withholding withdrawals for a few years after retirement until a person is in a lower tax bracket? I look at the shares that I would be buying now uh, with the tax money I'm spending right now and wondering if I would be better off uh, going with the traditional 401k. So I think in essence, this is kind of, uh, let's talk about when it might be appropriate. And let's, t let's talk about A and B. One is just our accumulating the difference between traditional, which means you get a tax deduction for the money you contribute to the traditional plan, whether it's a 401k or an IRA, or the Roth provision. It says, okay, you're gonna pay your taxes first, but you get to put your 18 or $19,000 in a 401k plan. And you don't have a government as a partner uh, in the future earnings and shares and value. Do you have any kind of tentative, so your friend calls you from your college doctor friends call you and say, which one do I pick? Are there some kind of litmus tests that are pretty basic and broad? Yeah, I, I just look at what's earnings now and I say, what, you know, what do you project in the future? And of course, nobody knows what their earnings necessarily will be with certainty, nor the right. impact of what taxes are going to be in the future. We can only make rational guesses under uncertainty. And so I just say, you know, to the extent that you're earning this money now, do you think you'll earn more money later? What is your savings going to be? Do you want to potentially spend as much as you can in retirement or not? For folks that want to spend as much as they can, they might bump themselves up into retirement into a higher tax bracket because they've saved so much. Others might say, you know, it's not a need for me to maximize the amount of income I need every single year. I couldn't spend it anyway. So if if you just start going through these exercises and, and asking yourself, what do I want out of retirement? Do I want to maximize or not? And then you say, do I have any sources of income that would also bump me up? For example, like a pension. Maybe one spouse has one and that's going to be guaranteed coming in potentially every month for the rest of your life. Uh, plus maybe some 401k income that you have from working. It could easily be more than maybe what you made during your working years. And if you start looking at that picture and say, well, I can hedge it. I don't know the answer. Maybe I'll do part of my contributions into a Roth, part into a traditional. Um, and maybe this year I do all Roth, next year I do all traditional. There's no right or wrong answer when I'm, when I'm asked this question. Um, we just can, you can take it year after year and then uh, reassess and readdress as tax rights maybe even change, which we may see in the near future. So we, would you say asset allocation getting that right is more important and trumps whether you do traditional or tax exempt? Is that fair to say? A absolutely. So when we talk about that, we just say, let's, let's get the big things right. And then after we get the big things right, like how much do you have in stocks versus bonds? Then we'll start talking about the little nuances of how we could maybe move the needle a little bit closer um, to maybe putting things in your favor of more money in your pocket rather than having maybe more taxes to the government later. Yeah, there are a few uh, no-brainers, though. If you have a really low income year, you might as well go for the Roth. I mean, the... So you find yourself in the 10 or 12 or even 22% tax bracket, I'm probably yeah. going to favor the Roth if mm -hmm. I had to paint in broad, broad brushes. Sure. And again, it's almost impossible to, uh, to do it. Roths weren't available in the 1970s, but in the 1970s, the marginal tax rate was 50% at the highest and went down to 30. Now it's up to close to 40. So, so it's really hard. That, that every, everyone that came in was saying, uh, do the traditional, even though there wasn't a Roth at the time, because you're sure of uh, having a lower tax rate when you retire than when you're working. But in fact, I think most people probably found that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. In fact, when you run plans, Brian, I mean, you can run them side by side and yep. say, well, what if we do A, we put it all in 401k, B, all in Roth, and maybe C is every other year or 50-50. We don't mm -hmm. know. We just kind of agnostic. Uh, all you can do is work within the tax brackets we know about today right. and get some concept uh, of you know where you might want to do your accumulation. I I still think if more people sp spent more attention to, you know, if I'm in my twenties, thirties, forties, or even fifties, you know, a hundred percent of what I'm contributing should probably be going into the stock market, index funds versus bond funds, is is going to probably well I don't have any. It's not a probable. I don't have to hedge it is a much more important decision. Now, there comes a point too where you gotta think ahead. Part of the thinking, is it not, of okay, what, it under the current tax laws, um, the day I retire and throughout my retirement, 
you it's fair to say you do an assessment of what their future tax brackets mm -hmm. are likely to be and that can give you some inclination also of wait a minute if we put all of our money in just the tax deferred traditional tax deferred we get the tax deduction now um, and down the road with required minimum distributions for some people you might find that especially if one spouse dies and now we're talking dealing with single tax status exactly uh, it's not that hard to be in a high tax bracket so some of these things you need to get in front of but i think probably the only way most people are going to be able to do it unfortunately is they're going to probably need to have somebody who actually does that for a living uh to do those calculations to figure out and, and we're look there's no facts about the future so we're, we're not going to know until we look backwards but I would say 22% or less. I'm in a marginal tax bracket. I'm probably going Roth personally. Uh, anything above that, because our clients are, look, they're kind of the millionaire next doors. Okay, they're people that have worked hard. They've been frugal. They've saved 750,000 to a, a million and a half dollars, maybe. Uh, so not super wealthy, but most people might consider that certainly affluent, right? Yep. But it's it's real easy to be only in a ten or twelve percent tax bracket and have a hundred thousand dollar income, and not even pay ten percent total in taxes, uh, or maybe somewhere close to that. So for most people, they're going to find under current laws, you can have a pretty good amount of income and still be in a ten twelve percent tax bracket. And I think that's something that needs to be factored because now, if you're saying, well, maybe that twenty two percent might not make sense. That is, if I find that currently I'm in a marginal tax bracket of 22%, that means I would get a 22 cent deduction. Well, that might make more sense if I think I'm likely to be in a 10 or 12%. Right. But again, we're dealing in the realm of we don't know what future exactly. tax rates are going to be. So my suggestion is flip, you can even flip, a, well, if you're in a higher tax bracket above 22%, I don't think you flip the coin, I think you go into the traditional, uh, the other, feel free to flip a coin in every other year. I hope that makes sense to the person that uh, texts that in. We have a second text. Can you talk about the regime's plan? The regime, Fred. The regime's plan to tax unrealized gains. Who would decide when the gains are calculated? I talked with my advisor, and we don't think this will happen. So what, what say you about that? Well, uh, this is for 100 years or so, for a century, we've kind of have right. not had untaxed, right. uh, taxed unrealized gains. Right. Well, the uh, things have changed. Uh, a few weeks ago, they were talking about uh, taxing unrealized gains. Now, I think we may be talking to an audience of one. Uh, it's only going to apply under the current plan to billionaires. And so capital gains that occur that someone has a billion dollars in assets or more, uh, and the assets go up in a particular year, they would uh, have to declare that as income in that year, which is called an unrealized capital gain. So, again, it affects a very small number of people, but then uh, a whole host of problems come up when you do that. Uh, if you say, well, let's just tax uh, marketable securities uh, where, where you can value them easily, then you end up with a strong incentive for people to get out of marketable mm -hmm. securities. And then you say, well, why, what happens if I, I uh, have a gain of $100 million this year and next year I have a loss of $100 million? So you can give me a, a, a refund on that uh, thing. So there are a whole host of issues about how do you uh, – how you would actually implement a, a realized gain, even just for the billionaires. And then there's also the wild card is uh, billionaires are not locked in place. They're, they're, they and their assets can move around. So it's a it's a proposal now, and that's the only one on the table right now, but it may, may not actually happen. Yeah, a lot of tax decisions are made as if everything's static, nothing's going to change, and people won't change their behaviors yeah. or substitute ideas. Uh, so, so relating to that... Um, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal, and I'm not going to go into it too heavily, but they're saying they went back and they talked about how in 1986, the Tax Reform Act then basically really punished, particularly like limited partnerships and passive investing in real estate, but the unintended consequences that basically brought down the savings yeah. and loan in, uh, industry, and we headed into a recession in, I think it was 90, 91, yeah. and I think... They had even changed the laws by 1990. They realized that they had kind of yeah. made a mistake on that. And the the author of the article, who's a tax accountant and a, 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 and a tax attorney and everything. A representative, also an elected official, I think, too. Uh, might, may very well be. And it may just be the lobbyism of yeah. going on here. But it, it kind of made sense to me. 
just from a basic economics, they're saying, look, if you're going to radically increase capital gains tax and remove some deductions for real estate investing, and then maybe tax unrealized gains, um, you know, are we setting up another unintended right. consequences? He basically said it's going to really crush the value of right. real estate and talked about, look, it's real estate needs ta certain tax preferences in order to incentivize people to make because because it's such a long term hold investment compared right. to most how most people think of stock and bonds and things like that. And they're saying, wow, this this is really potential a crippling fund. And think that's yeah. hyperbole, maybe or well, I, I think they got it wrong, but uh, and it, but it's a, a concern. <clears throat> I think where they got it wrong was there was a huge change in 1981 <clears throat> that allowed. Uh, tremendous advantages to uh, real estate investment, but then two or three years later, even Ronald Reagan's administration figured out maybe they gave away too much, and there was a tax increase in, in the 83-84 that took back some of those things, and then what they were talking about was 1986, which was tax reform, but I think they got it a little bit wrong because in the interim there was a change, and again, uh, uh, if people remember, uh, there was kind of a wild situation in the early 80s. Everyone was coming around offering limited partnerships. Oh, yeah. I remember well. And, and again, they didn't all fail, but they all didn't uh, materialize. And part of that was because some of the uh, unusually generous depreciation was taken away, and, and so it went back to a more normal situation. So I'd argue that the main problem was that they were wrong to begin with, and when they tried to re retrace their steps, they created this kind of cycle. So um, I, I didn't buy the whole idea, but there certainly is an implication that if we did a drastic change, there might be some implication on housing market values. Yeah. Well, but not, do, you, do you remember the the world where everyone had a a, a share of this place or that place? Oh, uh, yeah. of course. I mean, it, when I first got into the business, I tried to get into the investment business in 1982, but unfortunately, prior to 1982, the 17 years prior to that, the Dow went from a thousand to a thousand. That combined the fact I looked like I was 12 years old, I found it very difficult to find a job. <laughs> At least on the pure investment side, I, I ended up going into banking at first. Um, but by 1984, uh, in fact, I had tried with one firm in town. They said, how many clients do you have that can put $100,000 in a limited partnership? Yeah. So I said, well, I don't have any clients. <laughs> so I, how many relatives is the next question? Yeah. Well, I didn't have any relatives either that had that. Um, so, that so, so that led me to banking for a couple of years before I could get into it. But I sure remember that. Uh, in fact... Uh, working for a couple of the firms I did, I mean, that seemed like nine out of ten uh, presentations were, you know, the Balcors of the world and JMB Realty. I can still yeah. remember them. And most yeah. of them did in, in okay, uh, but a lot yeah. of them, well, yeah, really, the, the, lot of them got into trouble. Yeah, the, I was lucky enough to get out sort of unscathed. I didn't lose a lot of money, but I had to bear the consequences for about uh, 15 years in my tax returns. Uh, the, the number of partnerships wouldn't go away. They would keep appearing. I'd have... $12 of this and $6 of that and have yeah. to file space or return. So the, the hassle of, of uh, accounting was worse than the uh, whatever the investment was. Right. Yeah, I don't think Ryan would – he wouldn't recognize the investment world in the early 80s. Uh, the typical mutual fund had a sales charge on the front end of 8.5%. Mm -hmm. It was very much a real estate limited partnership or oil and gas limited partnerships. Uh, it, was, it was really a lot more like the wild, wild, right. wild, wild west. I had a call just this morning from somebody looking for advice about where to put some money for very short term. He said, well, what's the load on that? What's the, what the cost going to be? And I said, well, I'll tell you, you really shouldn't be looking for anything that has a load anymore. I said, that's really a carryover. I said, the early 90s, you're calling it the later 80s. Both. Um, but I said, you know, you don't need it anymore. You know, there's, there's way more options than there were before, and it's not necessary as a form of investing. You're not buying access to better investment options by having a sales load. That might have been a marketing story at one time, uh, but in today's world, it's it's completely unnecessary. Are they, are they still doing the uh, kind of trick about uh, you put it in, and then if you stay for a certain number of years, then the load yeah. goes away, yeah, which the, is just a way of disguising and, the – Yeah, the, kind of they call them back-end loads or, you know, it's like, hey, as long as you stay in it for seven years, yeah. you know, but it's what they're no doing commissions. Is they're they're amortizing over a the, higher yeah. expense. It's yeah. similar to what variable annuities do. Uh, I, you know, you see, I see less and less of that anymore. These call them B shares. Right. I don't can't remember the last time I saw a prospective client walk in when you review their investments that they have those C shares became kind of yeah. became more popular, which were lower expense and 
Uh, yeah, the other thing which uh, people don't realize, even people who don't who are active investors in mutual funds have gotten a great benefit from uh, index funds because it's pushed all the other fees down now. So oh, for sure. You don't get the I, – I suppose you could find them, but you don't get the uh, – Funds that have a two percent uh, annual charge anymore? Do you? It's rare, you know. Usually, it's a fund that just happened to come out at the right time, and they shot the lights out for a couple of years, and they can sort of charge whatever they want, which kind of makes sense. I'm not saying it's good, but kind of it's a sensible story. Here's a couple of the things I think that kind of I don't know. I think everybody feels so yucky right now overall, uh, but yet we, as we said earlier, we have a stock market at an all time high, and then I looked at. Uh, Household net worth, U.S. household net worth, again, at an all-time. And, and it's really quite a bit above where it was in 19, uh, 2019 and 2020, uh, quite a ways away, uh, higher. But then I looked at household debt service payments as a percent of disposable income. I mean, if this, this chart goes back to the 70s, and it's lower. So then in other words, the households, the typical household, it's typical, I guess there's no typical, yeah. but on average, I guess they're looking, or in the aggregate, it's to all-time lows, the burden, it's somewhere around 8 or 9%. Uh, it wasn't too long ago, in 2005, it was 13% uh, of their budget. Right. And a part of that's probably just lower, epic low interest rates, wouldn't you say, right. Fred? Sure, and again, there have been... You know, government payments and things of that sort that have uh, bolstered people's yeah, bottom line as well. It's just been incredible. Um, interest rates have been ticking up. I noticed 30 year mortgages. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of three and a quarters percent. I noticed, uh, oh, you know, up until the last few months, you know, I saw some at 2.75 or less. Um, I'm looking at inflation, Fred, and I look at the 10 year break even inflation rate. So that's kind of the market's way of looking at a straight 10 year treasury versus a Ten-year tre- Treasury inflation-protected security, and that's ticking up. That's that's around two point six four percent is kind of what the market. Right. Play. It doesn't have to be right, but it's saying, hey, we expect over the next ten years, two point six four percent. Yeah, it shows how the world has changed. Six months ago, we were talking about negative interest rates right. and uh, a, a dis- uh, deflation. <laughs> now it's all all the opposite. So it's hard to, obviously hard to plan in that kind of environment. But, but the 10-year treasury is now up to 1.66. Hardly a, yeah. you know, it's still, if you were just to zoom, if you were fell asleep 20 or 30 years ago and someone says 1.66, you'd think that had to be an epic all-time Is that the, that's the gross return, not not the real return? That's, so, the, gro- that's the nominal return. So you're still, you're zero, losing zero. about 1%. Yeah. Uh, if you look, well, yeah, uh, on that, you're, you're about zero. Um, a lot of comments about inflation. I'll be interested to see if Ryan's getting any questions about inflation. But Jeff Gunlack says he's the head of a giant firm, kind of a bond guy. He says inflation will stay above 4% through 2022. And I noticed that Atlanta Fed President Rafi, uh, Rafael Bostic said the factors that have pushed inflation higher will not be brief. Um, we're hearing a lot of people saying that maybe inflation is not as transitory as we think it's going to be. Uh, you think we could even see hyperinflation? Like some of these people are, like J- uh, Jack Dorsey is the head of Twitter. I yeah. don't know what makes him an expert in this, yeah. but he's basically <laughs> announced that we're going to have hyperinflation. Well, hyperinflation is not a well-defined term. I mean, uh, when I think That's about true. hyperinflation, I think of uh, Brazil or uh, Weimar Germany or something like that, where you're That's talking right. about hundred percent a day right. uh, in Brazil you're talking about you know forty percent fifty percent a year I think people around in the United States are thinking six percent is hyperinflation which is not it's not a good thing but it's certainly not hyperinflation so uh, I, I guess I, I've changed in a sense I think it's going to take longer than yeah. I did a, a few weeks ago but I can't imagine the bottlenecks are going to continue for two years uh, 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 I can't the either. kind of things that you can't get the the right kind of uh, Halloween uh, candy, uh, Fred, or, or you can't get your your uh, certain thing of uh, exact soft drink you want of diet flavored Fresca. <laughs> I couldn't get Fresca for a year. Yeah, now I can get Fresca. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's like, quirky how things come and go, though. It's yeah, but it's, it's not exactly uh, World War II for us uh, in terms of. Uh, I think ration. I think we're just too soft, Fred. Really deep down, yeah, is this. I mean, I got to admit, I was kind of mad when I was at Costco's and Sam's and I couldn't find full-size Skittles that I've yeah. done every year before that because the kids in the neighborhood have it's all It's all relative. There's a story about um, 
some uh, Americans were interned in a Japanese, uh, it wasn't a prison camp, an internment camp, and they had really terrible living conditions, and they were released after the end of the war and came back to the United States, and they started talking to people, and the first thing people talked about is how tough it was to not be able to buy gasoline or tires uh, after they'd been in a prison camp for, for four years. So it's all relative to you know, what you expect. Well, with so much... I know there's inequality and all these things, but in the aggregate, the, the U.S. is has gotten wealthier and wealthier. I mean, one of the downsides of that probably, and then we're going to take a call here uh, from Zoe. Um, it, I, am I just getting to be a cranky old dude thinking, you know, if World War Three came <laughs> along, I'm not sure we could get a force, up, you know, yeah. if, like we had to in World War One and Two, where the 17-year-olds yeah. would run away and fake that they were 18. Well, you have to, I mean, things change. I suppose if the uh, threat is uh, uh, obvious enough that things would change. But again, uh, the war in the future may not be war in the past, but you, you went from uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson saying, we'll never get in the war, to a few months later having uh, entry into World War One. So, uh, and people's attitudes changed after that. So I don't know whether we could marshal that now or not. Probably the leaders can't, they don't have the same kind of, uh, of the credibility they did. All right, we're going to try to pick up Zoe. Zoe, are you there? Sorry, I was talking to my dog. Sorry. Oh, well, that's okay. <laughs> it's probably more fun than talking to me. Well, she was uh, <laughs> getting getting in my face, and I was trying to be ready to talk. So, anyway, I appreciated your comments just now. That was interesting about World War III. Anyway, um, and I wanted to comment. I, I saw an article this morning that people in certain parts <clears> of Venezuela are... Um, flaking off bits of gold to use to pay for, say, a restaurant meal or a uh, stay in a hotel for the night or, and they, they, you know, they'll talk about this is half a gram, this cost, they, they'll accept half a gram of gold and, and they'll just sometimes just eyeball the flake of gold because they've gotten so good at it wow. this is in certain parts of Venezuela. So I hope our inflation doesn't yeah. ever get to this point here. Yeah, well, well, yeah, uh, there, some of us are going to be in trouble because we don't have any. Yeah, <laughs> Venezuela is beyond Brazil in terms of irresponsibility. So there are all kinds of issues about the underlying soundness of the economy. So you're probably right that it's almost a barter economy in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I called about was that $600 bank IRS thing. Could you <clears> come in and... Did that go away out of that bill? I, I got real confused with all that. Last I heard, they're now they're saying it's 10000 but it might as well be the same. I mean, most people with, throughout a year are going to have $10,000 in some, sure. in, in summation and transactions. So it seems to me right. that's the ultimate spread. I mean, I, I guess that's a political issue, but to me that's the ultimate privacy spy game. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that, that to me. And then, of course, people might argue, well, you don't have to worry about anything if you're not, unless you're doing something yeah. illegal. Really? Do we really want to go there and live there in order to try to, no. to do that? I mean, that's, I'm all over the map politically, well, but yeah, that's one area. That's a lightning rod. Well, there's been something there. around for at least three or four decades about withholding of dividends and interest. And uh, even, even Republican administrations who want money talk about that. And you could argue, well, why, why not? Because you have to pay tax on it anyway. So we do so much already in terms of intrusiveness, in terms of uh, having report uh, payments and things of that sort that I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a major uh, step one way or another. So I'm not, not in favor of it, but I don't think it's a catastrophe either. Because They probably have so much information already. Yeah. But for some reason, there's a need to. Yeah. They're, you know, they're not making this up. There must be some rationale for figuring well, out if we mean, can look at every account. Again, in other words, banks have to cooperate. Yeah, there's, but I think it's fairly clear that uh, uh, how many uh, wage earners cheat on their taxes, the answer is not very many because, right. they, because they can't, because it's, their income is uh, registered and is withheld. How many uh, uh, small businesses uh, come in short in terms of tax payments? The answer is quite a few, and it's because of the reporting situation. So. You, you could argue that if I'm a worker and go to work every day and get paid and they take the money out and I uh, have no ability to change, why, why shouldn't other people live in the same same environment? So I think you can go either way. Maybe it's not as big a deal as I thought. <laughs> Anything well, else, Zoe? The, bank, the banks say, the small banks, it would be horrible for them. They would have a terrible time having to do all that. They say it would just, you know be disastrous for well, them. It would be in the short run, but uh, there, there so are uh, ways and means uh, 
there used to be an argument that you, you can't expect out-of-state vendors to ever collect tax on sales. So if you buy something from the LL Beam, no, there's no way they can figure out how to collect the tax. And now with software, it's, they push a button and it's done. So. Yeah, I, th- I think it feels very invasive, and I don't totally yeah. even understand with the 10000 how that would work, what they would want to be checking. It's not that I – I mean, I don't have anything to hide with my income, but it's just – I don't like the invasive feel of it. I've yeah. never liked well, it. Well, that's the uh, – again, it's invasive. That's the uh, former speaker, uh, uh, Dennis Hastert, was – he wasn't tried for all the other things. Right. He was tried for uh, taking money out of his bank account uh, beyond the, <laughs> yeah. the the limit. So yeah. again, so I, my point is not that it's good, but it's that we're already halfway there, if not yeah. more. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the scary part. Hey, thank you. All right, Zoe, thanks. Yeah, and that might just be the natural. There's just so much distrust right now on every side. Uh, I think there's just levels uh-huh. of distrust. And that's just one more little, you know, can of fuel next to the fire, I suppose. It gets people pretty, pretty wrapped up about it. Um, like you say, it, I, I'm, I'm kind of a hypocrite because I do kind of a lot of things I approach. I say, well, uh, I'm not cheating, so what, uh, I'm not worried about it. Only people that are cheating have to worry about yeah. it. But like you said, it just could be something <laughs> inadvertent. I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. But uh, one thing about inflation, Ryan, you know, one of the things – you know, when you look at things like the uh, 60 40, I mean, the 4% rule, mm-hmm. uh, studies that show that historically over 30 year periods, using a 60% stock market, 40% uh, fixed income portfolio, I think they use five years treasuries as the proxy there. You know, you should be able to keep your income as of, uh, you know, relative to inflation up. Um, there's a lot of flaws in, the, in that 4% rule. I'm not here to discuss the flaws of the 4% rule, but inflation is a real concern for people in retirement even if even if over the next couple of years maybe we have uh, excess inflation of 10 or 15 percent well even when inflation becomes tame and we go back to disinflation your spending now is still at a much higher plateau than it would have been at what we would think of as normal inflation um, you seeing many cons- many questions at this point about inflation? Lately, about how- no, not now. Lately, I mean, that was I want to say four or six months ago. That was kind of like the topic of the time. That must have been when the um, the media mill was pushing that as like we need to find something to drum up in the uh, in the headlines. And now it doesn't seem to be like I'm getting questions about anything. And I think for for most people, kind of like my comment earlier, we're just kind of blissfully rowing the boat. No. No issues on the horizon, nothing behind us. We're just kind of like moving forward. Um, but yeah, when when those questions were coming out, it was like, is the sky falling? Is is this going to be the the next thing that sinks the ship? And it seems to be, in my opinion, from the past several months, that it's it's waned and it's, yeah, it's and not yeah, a topic on everyone's mind. When you mind. consider the age of our typical client, they all have an adult memory that can remember when inflation was running thirteen yeah. percent a year, and every, you know, and and those were really not very pleasant times of stagflation. And I think, you know, that particular generation is probably going to be more sensitive to it. Here's a question for you, uh, Ryan. Uh, question for around the money. I'm a dollar cost. I am dollar cost averaging into my Vanguard asset allocation funds. Should I be concerned about investing near the end of the uh, I think he means end of the year and pay taxes on capital gains for funds that have appreciated through the year. I would be paying capital gains on a fund I have held for only a short period of time. Talk to people about this time of year where you have to be careful uh, if you're making any significant investments. Dollar cost averaging, I don't get yeah. too uptight about, um, you know, because it's not going to have much of an impact. But what about somebody who just inherited a hundred thousand or fifty thousand sure. dollars, and they're thinking about, hey, I want to get half of that or more into the stock market, and here we are, we're in October, but soon to be November, and usually November, but really December becomes a heavier right. tax uh, season when it comes to long-term capital gains and mutual funds, such as Vanguard asset allocation funds, mm-hmm. that are probably pretty tax efficient anyway. So for the for the text that came in, I'd say no, don't be concerned. Or the call, um, you know, dollar cost averaging is kind of like the insulation for that. You're not putting it all in at one time and taking the risk of what the the concern is here is that you buy into the mutual fund, they pay out a dividend, and you didn't receive the dividend, but you're taxed as if you had in the eyes of the government. That's what can happen if you aren't watching the dates in which dividends are paid out, and you purchase a share of the mutual fund, or in this case, like you bring up. 
maybe a very large lump sum, you just bought into this tax burden that you have no, you didn't seek the benefits or reap the benefits from the dividend. Um, so that's the concern. Dollar cost averaging doesn't 100% remove you from it. You're going to get a fractional share of whatever you bought in at that point, and you'll have some potential gains, assuming they're paid out, and I'm sure they will be this year. Uh, but it's not going to be anything that I would say stop your dollar cost averaging plan because that defeats the purpose. You could call the mutual fund company, though. Probably by this time of year, they have a pretty good sense. It won't be perfect, but they're mm -hmm. going to have a pretty good sense of what those capital gains distributions are going to be. And this texter, by the way, says, I've only held it for a short period of time. So might even be more sensitive, uh, you know. Well, not really. Yeah. It's still going to be the same thing. They'll, they'll know the date, too. Yeah. Right. You can look at the actual date. I mean, and, the ex-dividend date when yeah. it actually is and again, going to pay uh, out. People may not understand. It's not that they distribute the – you don't get a check in the mail for the capital gains. Mm -hmm. uh, if they sell something internally and keep it there, it's still a gain for you. So you have to uh, not just look at what, what you get in the, uh, in the mail in terms of checks, it's what they get internally. And, again, one of the benefits of the, uh, of the uh, passive investment is you don't have a lot of – sales of the assets right. so you don't you don't realize the gains in the within the fund and, and, that, and that's because uh the net essence of an index fund or even any passively managed fund is even if they're if it's not a pure index fund but it's pretty tax efficient the the sh owners of those shares tend to be yeah. more patient too and there's not as many yeah. liquidations that can also trigger those capital gain distributions. And I think it's important to point out, too, that this topic of conversation applies specifically to taxable brokerage accounts, so uh, not, your, not your Roth IRAs, your Roth 401ks, your traditional 401ks or IRAs. This would just be a standard taxable account where there are taxable implications in the year rather than tax deferral, like in a traditional 401k or IRA. Speaking of index funds, uh, you alerted me to an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's, it was about trillions and trillions of dollars yeah. in... Uh, index mutual funds now it's like i think they said it was 40 percent of all mutual funds right. are index funds uh that's huge when i started using index funds back in 1990 <clears throat> i think it was less than 10 percent. sure and uh, yeah it really is a, a a huge change this is a a history of kind of the movement from all active management to uh mm -hmm. to passive and it, it turns out that it's a long story that the, not not surprisingly the first people weren't uh well received by the, by the financial community when they talked about passive investment, but they had the backing of uh, two or three Nobel Prize winners along the I thought way. The, I thought the one comment from the one guy on Wall Street, he goes, I wouldn't buy an index fund for my mother-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was the sentiment back then when these index yeah. funds, it was really kind of thought of as a nutty anti-American idea. Well, it's, it's, again, we, we talk about this all the time, but uh, it goes against the grain if you say, I'm, I'm going to take investing seriously. I'm going to look at all the firms and figure out which the which firms are the good ones and which are not very promising. And I'll buy the good ones and not buy the bad ones. That's certainly better than just buying a little bit of everything. But the fact is the market is so, uh, information flows so freely that all those things that you're learning have probably been learned a long time ago by other people and have been incorporated in the, in the market price. So it's practically impossible for an average investor to, to get ahead of the game. Of it, yeah. And not just you as an amateur, but it's also the same thing for a, a highly skilled professional. So what you're doing is, with an active fund, is paying someone money to uh, get market returns. And you, you're, what you're going to do is get market returns less the fees you pay, and you're below water right away. Mm -hmm. So again, is that 100%? No, there's obviously going to be uh, a few successful active investors, sure. but uh, a lot of unsuccessful ones yeah, as and, well. And the issue, of course, that that is inevitably brought up is there's no way to tell the difference before going to choose active investor A versus B versus C. You can't know. And you can't also distinguish in the short term between skill and luck. And we talk about that from time to time. But why not just look at the last three and five years returns? <laughs> uh, I, I'm serious. Because okay. uh, uh, that's basically what people do. If they get into, they roll in their 401, enroll into a 401k plan, they have to pick from this maybe 50 mutual funds Think about just a regular person. Uh, your your brain is going to have this natural tendency to, well, which funds have done the best over the last block mm -hmm. of time, and those are the ones I'm going to buy, not recognizing that those aren't the future returns; those are the past returns, and 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 you might actually pay a cruel price for that for that strategy. Yeah, right now you would uh, say uh, 
based on past performance, uh, no way I'm going into international stocks. Right. They've been terrible the last right. 10 years. I'm going to go Relative all into, uh, into S&P 500 because they've right. done well. And I, I didn't mean ne- ne- well in terms – negative in terms of right. low zero, but not, not keeping up. So, But a lot of other people would argue maybe it's time for the uh, internationals to uh, – to get back in the game again. So you can play it either way. Yeah. Um, I want to switch topics because I've been getting a lot of questions, and I know some of the other advisors at our firm have been getting this. Is And then I realized, <clears throat> I read an article where 55% of the people, this is as a bank rate, uh, which is a magazine article, blogosphere, 55% of the people plan to look for a new job within the next year. And that triggers, there's a lot of orphans, sort of 401k accounts at these mm-hmm. businesses what are some of the if i'm thinking about quitting my job and i've been in a 401k what are the triggers what do i need to be thinking about ahead of time uh, i before you pull the trigger i definitely want to say make sure that you look at your company's vesting schedule the vesting schedule applies to the company uh, matches and the funds that you get in your 401k so not the component that you contribute but any match that your company does some companies have a vesting schedule, which says that as soon as the money goes in the account, it's your money to keep regardless of how long you work at the company. Others may have like a three or longer year period whereby you have to essentially stay uh, and earn those contributions from the employer before they're officially yours. And so you wouldn't want to say, well, I'm going to pull out at two years and eight months to find out that if you just waited around another two, two months, you get the full vesting of your, your employer contributions. So that's number one first thing I would do is make sure that what you can take of yours that you've earned and worked for, you can take with you. Now, once you've done that, you have a few options within the 401k uh, parameters. You can uh, keep the money in your, your current or maybe at this the old employer you just worked at's 401k. Uh, provided it, you have over $5,000 in it. You could roll it over to an individual IRA where you manage it yourself. Or a third option would be you could roll it into your new employer's 401k, provided their plan documents allow for it. And what I always try to tell people is it's I'm agnostic as to which one's the best until I know all the information. Some Some plans don't have very good or what I would just say low-cost fund options. That's what I, I generally look at as are the funds low cost and are they widely or globally diversified as like a mutual fund, an index mutual fund? If they have those, I say, great, there's not a real big uh, issue with purchasing those maybe within the new 401k and rolling your old funds into the new employer 401k. But if I look at an, a client or a prospective client's new 401k lineup and I see higher cost funds, not really broadly diversified, there's you know, kind of like pick and choosing of random investment options, I say, you know, for the cost and all that I'm looking at, you'd probably be better just getting an IRA and with a little bit of guidance, uh, a selection of funds that would actually be better in your interest. So there's th- there's a few different choices. I don't know where else you maybe you want me to well, talk about. Well, one of the options, maybe you said it, because I'm always reading while you're talking, you know, because that's what a good host does. Um, <laughs> that's what a good father-in-law does. <laughs> yes, he tune, tunes you I out. tune you out really quickly. Um, <laughs> Usually you have an option also leaving it at your old right. company's plan. Maybe you said that. And, you know, again, you want to say, hey, if, if they have a really good low-cost plan, yep. they're in there. So, And, and one, one thing to really consider, too, is the benefit of, of not rolling money out of your 401k in, into an IRA but leaving it within the 401k world is if you potentially want to retire before the age of 59 and a half. And that number is relevant because at age 59 and a half with an IRA, that's the first time you can withdraw funds out of the IRA without incurring the additional 10% tax penalty for being too young. Um, At age 55, under the 401k guidance rules, you can withdraw money out of your 401k if you separate from service. So you quit, you're fired, uh, whatever it may be. Age 55 to 59 and a half gives you a four and a half year window in the 401k world where you can pull money out of that 401k and not incur that 10% penalty. So that's always something I stress to clients or, or prospective clients. Let's consider that, you know, in our con- in our conversation of what to do with the funds. You even have clients where even though they're retired and they move the bulk of their money to us for us to manage according to their plan, plan first, then the money becomes a servant to the plan. But if they're in their, you know, 55 and in that between period where you'll say, hey, we're going to keep a certain amount of money mm-hmm. that we're going to withdraw from each year. Exactly. If we need to withdraw from our tax deferred accounts and therefore we eliminate the 10 percent penalty. So it's just having that awareness. It, it, also, the uh, uh, it's a nuts and bolts kind of thing. But the way you transfer is important as well. Mm-hmm. If you Great go point. from 
from the uh, one for, from the provider to the other provider without never taking possession of the um, money. It's a safe way of doing it. I think if you take possession and hold it too long, it counts as a withdrawal. Yeah, exactly. So if you do what's called a trustee to trustee transfer, just custodian transfer from firm A to firm B, you don't take receipt of those funds. It doesn't show up as your earned income for the year. Uh, you don't incur the potential 10% tax penalty. That's the ideal way to do it. You can take a distribution and then have 60 days rolled into a new plan. The problem with that is, and, and I generally try to tell everyone to avoid it at all costs if you can, is they withhold 20% out of that account. So let's say you have $100,000 401k, $20,000 is going to be withheld for tax purposes so that if for some reason you can't you can't meet this obligation, the government gets their their tax revenue. But what that means for you is the employer that or the employee that left is you have to fulfill that $20,000 hole out of your personal savings or checking into that new 401k or IRA to avoid getting that as taxable income. So the simple thing is do a trustee to trustee transfer. Yeah, I think that's always best, at least and if you don't know what to do, just ask somebody, reach out. I can't believe that almost any firm in Champaign-Urbana wouldn't answer a simple question like that, a financial advisory firm or a CPA firm. You know, if you just had a basic question, I know if somebody called me to say, what are my options and choices, I'm not going to bang on them and try to get them to become a client. I'm just going to give them, we'll just dispense here, you know, here, check A, B, and C and make sure that you do a trustee-to-trustee transfer. And how do I do that? Well, go to your HR department and mm-hmm. tell them that you want to do a trustee-to-trustee transfer. They'll do 10 of them that day. They know what to do, yep. uh, so they're not going to have to create something new. And I'll say, just to be aware, sometimes you'll get a check in the mail from your old 401k provider. Now it'll say, it should be made out to, for example, if the money's moving to a new account, say, to Charles Schwab for the benefit of your name. So that's not taking con- receipt of the money. It's in, in the name of the custodian, so that's okay. And then you want to be careful how you endorse it and, you know, get it to your new place, right? Yep. So okay. Schwab will be the one in this case that would endorse and, and take the check in, but yep. Good stuff. Well, we're going to be on the inflation watch. I don't have the second, you know, we usually have a clock in here where we have the actual seconds. It says 10.58. It's about to turn to 10.59. So uh, you got a quick thought, Fred? Well, I think that uh, kind of encouraging news uh, – uh, a very prominent Democrat advocated uh, re- reappointing Jerome Powell to the Fed. So, Okay, that's good news. All right, should take us about uh, 11, I mean, 10.59.15. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. We'll be back in the second Tuesday of November. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station.